0: This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, and this man has been holding court on the basketball court for his uh, pretty much his entire life, but it's his interest in tennis that gets him on my program today. He's one of the all-time greats in broadcasting. He's someone that inspired me to get into broadcasting when I was watching him as a kid back in the day, him doing college basketball. He is the one and only Dickie V, Dick Vitale. How are you today, sir?
1: Hey, Patrick, really doing great, man. To be with a superstar like you, I feel super. (laughs) I mean, you're a Stanford guy. I can't spell Stanford. I'm so dumb.
0: I'll tell you, I I I am being totally honest when I say that as a kid watching sports, um, I loved all the sports like you do. But when I watched you, I was never a huge college basketball fan, I have to be honest. But watching you, I call it uh, you know the ease of broadcasting, Dickie, the education, the entertainment, the enthusiasm. You have them all in spades. You've inspired me and many more like me, so I want to thank you for doing that. But the reason why I want to speak to you today amongst all those uh, issues as well is your interest and your passion for the game of tennis and all you've done to help tennis i know your kids both played your grandkids played tell me a little bit about how it all got started for you in the tennis world
1: well it got started for me uh patrick uh, my daughters uh years and years ago uh started to play a little tennis and finally we we're reading a lot about the nick Bollettieri academy so i told my wife let's go on a little vacation down to sarasota Bradenton area maybe let the kids go to the camp for a week and see what it's like. They were like real young and they're maybe nine and 11. And we came down here and they loved it. Oh my God, they loved it. My wife and I stayed in the condo. Uh, we had a condo down there. We'd drop them off each morning. They'd come back and they would just rave about how they really loved the whole scenario of what was going on. So finally, I said, Dad, can we move down here? Why can't we move and go there all the time? I said, what? I said, yeah. I said, well, well my job now at ESPN, I could basically live anywhere, you know, once I get to an airport. So I told my wife, if we're gonna make any move, let's make a move before they enter high school. And we did. We moved down here when they were in the sixth and eighth grade. They went to St. Stephen's Academy High School, and they played tennis at the Voluntary Academy. While they're in school, some of their classmates who were there with Jim Correa were David Wheaton. Oh, man, they had a cast of play- players there. It was unreal. And their game just kept getting better and better. They went from being nobodies who couldn't play. I mean, I'll give you a great story about that. They would be – people would go to the draw when they started out playing tennis and say, oh, my God, we got the Vitalis, man. We got an <laughs> easy W here. Cupcake, man, right. a cupcake. So they were getting beat by everybody. And then finally, they said, Dad – about six months into me at the academy, they said, can we go back and play the tournament up in Michigan during the Memorial Day weekend? So we went back, and then are not seated or nothing. And both of them went to the finals, and, both, and the parents are coming up and saying, oh, my God, they're not the same girls anymore. So that's how it all started.
0: So you were living in Michigan at the time, because, of course, you were the coach of the Pistons for a year before your broadcasting career started. So you were, you, you've told right, me a couple I- – You told me a couple times that that one of your daughters was really into swimming, and then you were kind of going back and forth. Your wife, Lorraine, was taking them back and forth to swimming and tennis, right?
1: You got that right, man. You got a good memory. They were doing swimming on a regular basis, and swimming, you know, became really, really tough, and then they had a little bad experience, and... They, they wanted tennis could we put all the time we're putting into swimming into tennis they just fell in love with it it was unbelievable I mean I, I've never seen kids they couldn't wait to go to the courts couldn't wait to go play and you know, I get a little frustrated. But as they get older, it, it became really tough with all those tournaments. As you know, as a dad right. having the daughter plays, watching your kids play is tough, man. And then you know, you get these rankings. I, I have a little problem with some of the things that are done in in junior tennis in terms of the rankings and all that. I, I just think. I don't know. It takes away the heart. I think of a lot of kids, after a while, they don't advance in terms of, of their rankings, and they just want to drop out. And I think it really becomes a dilemma here. But it does teach competition. I think the key is the parents, how they handle it, and how they deal with the kids. I know in our case, every time we talk to our kids, it's about one thought in mind. Utilize tennis to get yourself a great education go to a college and don't think about pro tennis until that moment comes if you're good enough that will happen if it doesn't so be it you've had a great experience
0: well I've been lucky enough to come down and visit you a little bit in the Sarasota area a couple times Dickie and I want to thank you for all you do for college tennis because you host an amazing college event every year down there you bring all the kids and the coaches to your house so it's tremendous uh, what you do for, for college tennis and for those kids and those programs but I've been lucky enough to go out and watch some of your your grandkids now practicing tennis playing tennis and uh, you've got a pretty keen eye dick dickie when it comes to sort of knowing what's going on in the tennis court is that something that just because you've always been in the sports or is it just from watching all the tennis over the years
1: you know you know patrick coaching uh, all my years i mean coaching is coaching and i've observed a lot of guys working uh in the field of tennis, teaching lessons, and I go there and I evaluate and I say to myself, is it being productive? Are they organized? Are they really prepared today, working on a specific part of the game, whether it be return to serve, serve, whether it be changing tempo in, in, in terms of the rally, doing little things. And and some guys, as you know, like any sport, you have some good basketball coaches you have some guys that are very average. And, and in tennis, the same way. So I always try to find those where I feel comfortable in my mind that they're getting the best out of every day when they go there for workouts, and we've been able to find some really outstanding people. Uh, my kids are, are achieving basically what they want. My granddaughter Sydney's going to Notre Dame; she'll be playing on the tennis team at Notre Dame. My my two grandsons, who are twins, are both in the top 20 in the country on USTA rankings, and and they basically right now they're made the are up in the top, I believe. 150 or so in the the world in junior tennis because of the ITF and you know they were really they were moving really well and then now obviously now with the 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 can't play tournaments they can't advance but they they got what they wanted they were recruited by almost everyone basically uh, with the exception of maybe a few but they visited Florida they visited Michigan uh, Notre Dame and Duke and they committed as juniors right now with a nice scholarship. So each of them of the play for Coach uh, uh, Smith down there at Duke and uh, they're excited about that. And they're really uh, looking forward. They're only really juniors, so they still got a year and a half. Then I got a young girl who's only in the eighth grade, Ava, and she's done exceptionally well for her age, and she's uh, really just coming along. I was watching her the other day, and she's really starting to advance her game in terms of her serve and her her volley game, which she has to improve on.
0: Well, she's a strong girl. I got to watch her play and meet your twins as, as well, They're, your grandkids, great kids, and uh, met your daughter. She actually hit a few balls with her against a wall, which was pretty cool to see. So I could see her her talent coming through. She's running around. But you're right about junior tennis. And actually, I want to go back to a point you made earlier, Dickie, because I think it's really important, and it's something – to be honest, I don't think we've really figured out in the tennis community, the tennis world, which is we do lose a lot of kids that, as you as you noted, don't maybe advance that high into the USTA rankings or into their own sectional rankings. And because there's not really that middle ground you know, that you see in other sports, whether it's high school basketball playing for your school, whether it's youth soccer, et cetera, it's almost like we have a problem in tennis unless you get really good – um, you know, fairly quickly, it's hard to find a place where you can fit. And that's why I've always felt that that high school tennis or some type of team tennis, if we could somehow get that to grow a little more would give kids – because I see kids at our academy, you know, that are super high level. And then I see a lot of kids also that, you know, just happy to play a couple times a week, play at their high school. And to me, we need to do more in tennis for those types of kids to keep them in the game.
1: Yeah, I really believe that. I I definitely believe it. I think you see kids drop out because some kids, let's face it, they have a tough time with tournament uh, competition in terms of really mentally handling the pressure of playing in tournament play. And when they're starting to have, they may look great working out, doing a super job, and you watch them practice. Put them in a tournament match, they're a different kid. And I think that sometimes you've got to work a little bit more with the mind of the kid than just the, you know, stroke, 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 stroke. strokes. I think there's a tendency to overdo that. I think it's a tendency when I watch practices, so much is hitting ground strokes back, back and forth, back and forth, and they don't work with the strategy of the game, and also the mental part. I think the mental part is really key. I think it's important for coaches to handle kids really in a very, very special manner, especially when a kid loses, comes back from a tournament, gets knocked out in the first round, he's got other peers maybe that marched on from the same group, and now he's got to face them, and that peer pressure becomes tough to deal with. If there was something that bothered me when, I, when my daughters initially went to uh, Nick Molitari's academy was they were like groups. You'd go to a tournament and you'd see the kids that, that excelled in the tournament who won or went to the finals. Remember every tournament only one person walks away with a, with a smile and a trophy as right. as the best. And and what happened down there, Patrick, is they all seemed to gather together. All this, the superstars are in their own little world. And I made a thing with my daughters and I told them. From the day they started, I don't want to ever see you think that you're going to be judged as a person by your success or your failure in tennis, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a part of your life, an important part of your life, but I want you to understand something. Whether you win or whether you lose in that tournament competition, I want you to act the same way when you start that week at that academy, when I don't want to see you drift all of a sudden, I want a big tournament, so now I'm going to go here with all the those kids and forget about those other kids. And I, I, I think the kids' self-esteem gets damaged big time, sometimes psychologically, and then the dislike for the sport starts in their mind, I don't like this, I don't feel good about myself.
0: No, oh, that's a great point. I am listen you're you're pumping me up, Dicky V, like you always do, and I'm going to bring you to uh, I want to bring you to our academy some point and when you come by New York, when hopefully this whole pandemic thing will pass in the next few months and we can all get back to doing what we love to do. I know this happened right in the middle of your college hoop season this year, shutting everything down, Wimbledon being canceled, but those are those words are are inspirational and I think that you're 100% right and I'm glad to hear you talk about cuz I just did a webinar yesterday with my brother with john for our kids at our academy and he always talks about the mental side of the game and you know now that we can't play tennis or we can't play basketball and do the things we want to do what an opportunity for these kids to think about their mental game because john always talks about that he gets so sick and tired of all the drills and the forehands cross court and he says how about thinking about how to play the game and it sounds like that's exactly what you're getting at too
1: yeah, no question about it. I, I think another one thing in tennis drives me nuts is now everything's in, all these rankings, four stars, five stars, three stars. Whenever the kids play a tournament, inevitably they go right away and look at the name and say, oh, man, I'm playing the kid today. He's a 12-3 UTR. Oh, he's going to be so tough. It's going to have to be uh- – And I get so upset about that. I don't care who you're playing. I don't care. Go out there and hit that yellow ball, man. And don't (laughs) worry about that. If you're good enough, you're going to win. But if you're going to psychologically put yourself in trouble, I mean, if you don't believe in anything you do in life, if you don't believe that you're entering with a feeling that today I'm better than the person across from me, you have no chance. You have no chance to succeed. I've often said, you know, uh, Patrick, and you certainly – this role, you got to have a passion about what you do. You yeah. got to have a sense of pride. I always break pride down to perseverance, to be able to really persevere when things don't go well, when they're not giving you the gold trophy. That's when you find out a lot about people, how you stand when things are getting tough. Tough times, tough people respond. R for respect. Respect everybody. I, used to t- I told the kids this the other day, I'm talking to them. I don't care who you play, you respect anybody with that record in their hand across that net. I don't care who they are. On a given day, especially the level you're playing, anybody can beat anyone. And you've got to respect every opponent. And then you've got to have eye for intelligence. The ability, I'm not talking book intelligence. I'm talking intelligence in the game of life to be able to make great decisions about the drug scene, about the alcohol scene, about peer pressure, knowing what's right and what's wrong. That's vital in life and growing. And then we talk self-explanatory. I always talk about the four D's of life. you got to have desire, dedication, determination. And you better have a discipline, a body, and mind. And you culminate it with E for enthusiasm. If you're not enthusiastic, I heard you talk about the three E's. My three E's are enthusiasm, energy, and an excitement for every day. And when you have that, a lot of good things are going to happen. And by the way, I'm going to send you a bill for a motivational speech right
0: now. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is I'm so fired up right now, Dickie. And this is why I love you and this is why you inspired me, and you're, you're continuing to inspire people. You're 80 years young, okay, and listen to your energy and your enthusiasm, <laughs> and that is why you are who you are. I want to ask you about the difference that you see, but you're talking so much about tennis, you're spot on. Is, are there different traits you look for in a great basketball player?
1: Well, certainly, first of all, obviously, he's got to have, in today's day and age, he better have some quickness, explosiveness, he better be athletic, and then he's got to have all the necessary fundamentals, you know, how to dribble, how to pass, how to shoot, and all that. And then you separate that with the guy that has the competitive drive, to always be better today than yesterday, but well, really – Always impressed me. Guys like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, today LeBron James. These guys have that unbelievable desire to be better today than they were yesterday. All the scrapbooks and all the trophies, all that is beautiful, but those guys are all about the moment. They constantly have that competitive, unbelievable spirit in everything they do. How do you teach that? That's very difficult to mm. teach in, in young people. And I, I, I sit there sometimes and I marvel because when you watch them, think about it, like your brother was, your brother, you, yourself. You don't get, you, I mean, people don't realize, you know, a lot of times they see what your brother did and people say, oh, geez, well, he was like nice brother. Oh, really? Well, there aren't <laughs> many of them like his brother. There are many that have been there, obviously. Right. But bottom line is, 99% of those players would like to have achieved what you've achieved. And and, and I think this, when I see the Great though, like a Jordan, year after year after year, everybody coming after him. I'll never forget a conversation with Michael. Michael is down here playing for the White Sox, trying to play baseball. Right. And the curveball just <laughs> ate him up alive. Right. But I'll never forget, I'm in the trainer's room with him, Patrick. He's laying there in the trainer's room with his shorts on. And we just have a casual conversation in the baseball trainer's room. And finally, I said to him, Michael, when do you have a basketball last in your hands? I haven't touched the ball, man, in maybe a year or so. No way. I said, are you serious? <laughs> so I said to him, I said, Michael, if you want to play a game tomorrow, you want to go to the game, what do you think you do? He goes to me, I says, are you kidding me? I know I get 20. I know I get 20. I said, Th- think about 20. You tell me I can't. I can't go out there and get two two baskets and a foul shot per quarter. Are you serious? A layup, maybe a transition, right. and maybe an offensive rebound. I'll, he said, but the way he broke it down, so analytic that he says, you know. Five points a quarter. Everybody makes a big deal when a guy scores twenty. What the hell? He goes, "What is that?" That's easy.
0: <laughs> I was at that I game. How those guys look I, at it, man. Yeah, I was at the game. Dicky, his his first game back when when he came back from uh, playing baseball at the Garden and did the double nickel, fifty five. He put on the Knicks that 55. night. And that was like, you know, <laughs> oh within God, a week he, of when he came yeah, back.
1: He could but th- it was just so – I was laughing my head off as he was telling that, because I know guys go crazy to, try, to score 15, 20. This guy's talking about, I haven't played in a year, and I can go out there and get 20 in my basic sleep.
0: Now, I know you've been – because I've seen you the last couple of years. You've made the rounds. You've been to Wimbledon. You've been to the U.S. Open. Last year, you were there for – I think you were there well over a week who do you love to watch right now? Who's your, who, would you, who, would you, who would you pay those big bucks for? I see you sitting right down in that front row with my old, my, our, our agent, our buddy Sandy Montag. You've got the best seats in the house, baby, and that's the way it should be, and ESPN taking care of you the way they should for all you've done for them for all these years. But who do you love to watch right now when you go to these big tennis tournaments?
1: You know, I love going out to the U.S. Open. It's so special, man. We go there for like a week, like you said, about eight, nine days. I bring all my kids, call my grandkids. It's tough getting 11 tickets, but we do. But, you know, who do I watch? I mean, obviously, you like to watch people. You know, I love watching Federer. I mean, I just love watching. He's another example. You know, those big three up on top, that blows my mind how they get to the finals, the final four, almost every tournament, how the consistency, with all these young people playing today, with their games accelerating like they are, it still comes to playing them, they can't get over the hump, oh they'll play them tough for a while, but then the big point comes, bottom line is it's over, they go to the sideline and they march on, so it's watching that unbelievable consistency and again it gets to that work, competitors, you know obviously love Nadal, he's a showman out there, Djokovic, uh, these guys are in another world, man. They're in another world. What they achieve, I didn't think anybody would catch Federer. But I'm getting a little worried now because to me, he's <laughs> the greatest of all time. Right. I, I I feel that way. Uh, I know it's people rank. Do you do you feel that the greatest of all time has to win the most Grand Slams?
0: uh I think that that's got to be a big factor I'm not gonna say that's definitive uh because of you know longevity and you know Davis Cup and Olympics which are important but maybe not as important the other th- interesting thing too Dick that you should you should and I know you probably know this that back in the day like when my brother was playing and Borg was playing they barely played the Australian Open I mean the Australian open for those guys in those years was essentially an afterthought so think about it so when Borg played when my brother played they were basically playing three majors a year they, they, they didn't even right. my brother actually when he was uh, competing with Borg and Borg was going for the third major every year at the U.S. Open you know he won uh, French and Wimbledon a bunch of years I think it was five years uh at when he won both and he could never win the Open but my brother would always say if he wins the Open then I'll go to Austin because in those years Australia was played in December and before they moved it in the, in the early 80s, they moved it the date to January. So Australia used to be the last of the four majors. It was played in December around the holiday time, which is part of the reason why a lot of the top players in those years didn't even go. And the prize money wasn't that extensive. So my brother never played the Australian until he was well past his prime, and Borg never played it. So you look at Borg, he's got 11 majors. Yeah, well, imagine how many more he would have if he played the Australian every year, like all the players do. So that's why the numbers are a little bit skewed. But I say when you're comparing these guys now, that's probably the most important number is how many total major titles.
1: It's just amazing how they're so consistent. Let me ask you a question. You grew up, obviously, you, with your brother. and A lot of people give the impression, or your brother gives the impression many times, you know, I didn't practice that much. I just go out there, do my hours. So it, it, is there any truth to that at all? Well, here's the thing about, about John
0: is that he, he practiced, and he didn't waste a second. Okay, so he wasn't a guy who liked to do, you know, there are some players like I used to practice with Connors or Ben and Villas. I used to practice with him. He used to come to New York. I was a high school kid and I would go practice with Villas and he would just hit ball after ball, four, five, six hours a day. I would just play with him for two hours after school when I was in. And he'd already played three hours in the morning. My brother, my brother was different. Borg was like that, too. Uh, My brother was like, let's warm up. Let's play. Let's warm up. Let, let, let's warm up three, five minutes. Let's so he go. believed I, to play
1: a lot of match A lot by, of points. Uh,
0: game situation. He would say to me one time, I'll, you'll love this story. I was practicing with an old doubles partner of mine. He came out to play with us for about an hour and a half. This was, he was kind of past his, his real competitive playing days. And then he went up and took a shower and he came down and he said, Pat, what are you doing? I said, well, we're just hit, we were hitting just some cross courts, you know, cross court uh, con, control route. He goes, what, what are you doing this for? I said, what do you mean? He goes, this is the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever seen. He says, "When are you ever going to do this in a match?" And I, I thought about it for a second. I said, "Oh, that's a pretty good point." I said, "Well, you know, my guy, my my partner likes to groove. We get a groove." He goes, "Get your get your bag." He goes, "Get your bag right now. We're leaving. This is a bit a waste of your time. It's making you worse than making you better." So, he, so he believed in playing and let's play with a purpose. Like he hated hitting practice serves. He says, "Why would you hit a practice serve? Because there's nobody over there." You have to hit your you – you, so, in other words, when you play, you have to practice. And I think that was his mindset. He also played a lot of doubles – So, he played a lot of matches and he competed a lot. And remember, when we were kids, Dickie V, we played other sports way more than the kids do now. We played soccer every year on our high school team. In In the fall, in the winter, we played basketball. And our basketball, I was terrible in hoops. By the way, my brother wasn't bad, he was obviously a better athlete overall. We were both really into soccer. We played on our teams and we would essentially play tennis on the weekends for a good portion of the year. And then in the spring and the summer, we would ramp it up and play tennis a lot more at our local club and go to the tournament. So we were always doing other things, but my brother's mindset was always let's play and let's go at it right now.
1: You know, I I think it's so overrated These five and six hours a day. Tennis, I get a little frustrated with that. I mean, if you can't, really have a great organized practice session, like you said about your brother, getting a maximum out of every moment you're out there. In two, two and a half hours, I think something's wrong. I mean, then you've got to, obviously, on your own, do a little conditioning uh, stuff, et cetera. But I think the five, six hours, I think it leads to a lot of injuries. I know a lot of tennis players get back problems, yep. uh, get foot problems, knee problems. And I think it's just the over, overwork constantly. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll go on record saying this. I think it's Toughest sport to play of them all. Oh, I don't care what sport you tell me about in terms of professionally, et cetera. The travel, the competition, the the there's no break. And then the psychological thing with kids, especially young kids, here so often. If you're not practicing, your competitors out there working. So you got to work every day. I mean, there's no break like there is a baseball and basketball and football. And I, I think it's brutal. And then. No, financially, I mean, you could be the bottom guy. Let's say you're the 300th player in baseball. Right. And I don't know how many guys, 25 to 30 guys on a roster, 30 teams. you got a lot of players. Mm-hmm. Take the 300th player in baseball. He's making millions, making a couple million a year at least. And the guy in tennis, 300, he's he's starving. He's struggling to, to, to survive.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. You're 100% right about that. Before you, You've given me so much time here, Dickie, and, and you've been amazing. Before I let you go. I, you know, I, I don't
1: mind. No, I, I don't mind. I just want to wrap it up with this though, Patrick, if I can, I want to wrap it up with the most important thing to me in my life today at my age is raising money for kids. Well, that's, well, that's what I was going to ask
0: yeah. you about. So please go ahead. Cause that was my last thing I wanted to, you to talk about.
1: Yeah, you know, Patrick, as you know, uh, you signed up with your beautiful wife and started a family to come to my gala. We had to postpone it. It was May 8th, and now you'll probably be in trouble with tennis. But we're going to have it September 4th, and it's at the beautiful Ritz-Carlton here in Sarasota, Florida. And the goal this year is going to be to raise $5 million. Uh, we've raised so far $29.5 million in terms of trying to help kids battle that disease. There's nothing worse. Because as you and I are speaking today, Patrick, as we're speaking today, Yep. And there's, we got a, a pandemic going on with this coronavirus, and we got to all unite all our people together. We got to get our politicians to forget about agendas, and we got to have the Democrats, Republicans, everybody unite together to beat this unbelievable disease. But saying all that, I want to just also remind you about this. Every day, not once a week, every day, 45 to 50 moms and dads are going to hear four words, no mom and dad ever wants to hear, your child has cancer. Mm-hmm. Today, as you and I are talking, I guarantee you today, 45 to 50 moms and dads will hear that. And it's life changing. You think you can be worry about, let's say, a tennis tournament. If your, your girl is going for chemo and radiation, mm-hmm. things of that nature. It's brutal. It's brutal. I see these people. I've spoken at funerals for kids. It tears my heart out. And there's nothing worse than that. And I just need help. So I'm asking anybody that might be listening here to, to this with Patrick and I, if you want to join my team and help me in my goal for the $5 million, very simply, you don't even have to come to the gala. Just make a donation. Just go to com. DickVitale.com. I also have their books. My latest book is my Mount Rushmore's. Every dollar from anything I sell now, I'm at the point of my life I've made enough money to live comfortably in my own world that I live in, and every dollar that I would make off my books, off my hats and basketballs, every dollar goes into that pot of the 5000000 million I'm trying to raise. I need help, man. I need help. These kids need help. So please, people, go to dickvital.com and make a donation. It goes to the V Foundation, memory of my buddy Jimmy V.
0: Well, on behalf of all of us that follow you, Dickie, uh, you're an inspiration. Uh, Thank you for all you're continuing to do, obviously for tennis, but most importantly for helping these kids and helping these families. It's a a labor of love. I've seen the work you do firsthand. I've seen your dedication. I've seen you talking to anybody that will listen, and they damn well better listen to you, Dickie V, because it's been an absolute pleasure and really um, a life dream of mine to become friendly with you and then to have you on my podcast right now. So I thank you, my friend.
1: I have so much respect for you, my friend. you have a guy that has used your success in life to help others, number one. And number two, you never, ever forgot where you came from. You still got a hand out there to help people. You care about it. Just keep that up. Don't ever, ever change, my friend. Don't ever, ever change.
0: You're the best, Dickie. Thanks again, buddy. To You're awesome, soon. baby. If I were on TV right now, I'd say <laughs>
1: Patrick Macaron. He's <laughs> awesome, baby, with a capital A. He's the 3S man. He's super synthetic sensational. And he's a solid gold P.T. Pier. Move over, John. Patrick's the star.
0: <laughs> that's that's the way to wrap it up. Thank you, Dickie. Take care, buddy. Take care. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.